Hi, I'm Owen, and welcome to Casting the Net, a new youth-led series hosted by teens for teens, exploring the breadth and depth of our online worlds. In each episode, we cast the net wide to learn about the opportunities and challenges the internet brings and hear from experts around the globe. The rapid expansion of the internet within society has led to marked changes in the ways individuals communicate, think, and how they live their lives. Traditionally, we got our news from trusted sources, journalists and media outlets that are required to follow strict codes of practice. However, the internet has enabled a whole new way to publish, share, and consume information and news with very little regulation or editorial standards. This is through rapid spreading of myths and disinformation, as well as the amplification of radical views and extremist conspiracy theories. Recent events here in Ireland indicate a rise in far-right radicalization that plays on local concerns and national issues. We've seen far-right activists weaponize social media platforms to incite fear, anger, and increasingly racist commentary. While the popularity of online personalities who promote controversial ideologies, misogyny, and extreme agendas continues to cause concern about the influence they have on their followers. So, is online extremism growing in Ireland, and what is its influence? To find out more, I'm joined by Kieran O'Connor, Senior Analyst at the London-based Institute for Strategic Dialogue, an organisation that researches disinformation, extremism and hate online. Thanks for joining me, Kieran. Could you start by telling us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So first of all, about ISD, uh, as you say, it's London-based, although myself, I'm based here in Ireland. Uh, we're we're a, a think tank, an NGO, a charity, essentially an organisation um, that, as you say, researches online disinformation, extremism, hate, all these bad things, let's say, uh, were funded predominantly by program grants from a variety of governments or foundations or companies, but we're independent of our funders, as are a lot of NGOs in this kind of space. So that means we don't accept funding tied to coming to a specific conclusion, these kinds of things, which is which is very important when you are conducting research that the findings aren't swayed by the funding behind it. Uh, our funders are listed on our website. So this uh, idea of transparency is essential to the work we do. And we are nonpartisan. So we work with different partners and donors whose values align uh, with our mission to protect democracy and do so by fighting extremism, hate, and disinformation. So a lot of my work revolves around looking at extremist groups or movements or trends online in Ireland, but in the UK and in Europe and in the US predominantly because I'm I'm an English language speaker mainly. That's where my expertise uh, or my experience um, lies. So a lot of my work day to day involves, as I said, looking at these kinds of trends or groups or movements uh, and also looking at emerging conspiracy theory narratives as they may be playing out. So COVID was a big one for that for, for many, many reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. And then the other side of my my job is kind of um, online open source investigations. So kind of taking some of the tools and experience that I learned within Storyful and applying them to uh, digital investigation. So if you have something like an email address, can you try and track where that email address might have been used online? Can you try and track who's behind the email address for various uh, investigatory needs as related to my job, but also kind of other uh, projects as well. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. But yeah, disinformation, extremism and hate is kind of what I do. Sounds like you've been quite busy. Would you say there is a growing influence by online extremists on protests on the ground in Ireland? Yes, almost certainly. And not even just recently, but if you go back to 2018, 2019, which is when we saw the uh, most recent prior to this, such a period, the most recent flare up in opposition and protesting against the uh, management and housing of asylum seekers here in Ireland. A lot of the same figures who are active in 
promoting protests then are active now and there's a difference first of all that we must strike and be very clear in that there's there are local communities who are um unsettled or frustrated or disenfranchised in some way because they have been uh, not consulted or haven't been listened to or uh, essentially these are the people who have real and genuine concerns that they're concerns that are based in capabilities of housing an influx of any kind of new new groups to the local population questions of resources questions of the ability to make sure that people get their basic needs these kinds of things that are that are really a question of uh resources and capabilities versus the other side which is really what which, which kind of gets a lot of the headlines of are agitators are outside figures are extremists and we say extremists because they are propagating or promoting uh, a far right or right-wing extremist view of the world and what that means is people or groups who endorse or support political or, or social uh, belief systems that have a, a number of different features uh, central to it all is this kind of overt extreme form of nationalism but it's it's a strict kind of nationalism so it's defined by your ethnicity so in irish terms this is defined by you being white irish and the view is that non-natives or non-nationals pose a threat to this nationalism that means that far-right figures in ireland as they do in other countries also exhibit strong forms of racism or xenophobia and to varying degrees they're they're anti-democratic so they are top down as opposed to kind of rule by by democratic votes and then group order and these kinds of things so yes lots of these figures have been present in protests in 2018 2019 and in in recent months and the way that this kind of manifests is that uh, in different ways there's no kind of one approach but lots of these figures are first of all yes they are all very active online that is a current feature a core feature of any kinds of far-right figure active in ireland but also abroad and they use a variety of different social media or messaging platforms to either try and promote their ideology or to try and mobilize get people from the online to the offline so protesting on the street but they also use these same spaces to typically promote or produce themselves false or misleading or exaggerated claims about a number of topics, but right now, a lot of these topics are related to claims that are used to target or other try and exclude uh, asylum seekers. And we've seen from East Wall from November onwards uh, in Dublin, that's kind of where the, 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 the initial flare up in a protest was, has now spread. And there's there's a mix, there's a mix of locals who are who are pissed off about how things have been managed in, in, in recent times. And there's a housing crisis, there's a health crisis on top of all these things. But what you see, the kind of thread that ties a lot of these groups together are figures online who will be saying, tonight it's East Wall, tomorrow it's Ballymun, the night after that it's uh, Mullingar or, or other places that are currently experiencing these kinds of protests. So yes, so by that very simple measure, Yes, there is an increase in the protests and there is an increase in the activity of, of far-right uh, extremists around these protests as well. Yes. So you mentioned the influential figures and we'll come back to those later on. But um, as you said, we're seeing an increase in the amount of ordinary people getting involved with these groups. So 
the main question is how do these extremists influence these local community groups uh, and how can we separate the concerns of local communities and extremist elements within those groups yeah it's a very important question and off the bat i'll say that if you are protesting against the housing of asylum seekers that does not automatically make you an extremist of any variety or any persuasion on either left or right or anything like that no but if you are protesting on the ethnicity of the people there or you're shouting and screaming at children or women out 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 go back to your own country these kinds of phrases then we then you are uh, you are moving towards extremism at the very least yes uh, it's very important to distinguish between first of all the kinds of uh, opposition towards towards uh, kind of asylum seekers and and how this manifests things that come up time and time again is things you might hear on the news is misinformation disinformation fake news false claims all these kinds of things it kind of helps to break these down first of all uh, they're all rhetoric they're all ways uh, means of describing information and and the veracity or the degree to which information is true misinformation is false or misleading or manipulated content that is presented as fact regardless of an intent to deceive so uh claiming that i don't know orange juice cures covid and you see your your granny sharing it on you sharing it on whatsapp or you or on facebook where you get the whatsapp that says forwarded many times that's probably a good example of of misinformation your granny hasn't hasn't stood over and said i'm going to make up this false claim now that is going to fool people into consuming more orange juice to cure themselves from COVID. No, they get it. They see it. They think that kind of makes sense to me. And it comes from someone that I generally trust as to be a good consumer of news and a smart person. So you forward it on to the other five people you think should know about this. That's what misinformation is. It, it really lacks the the intent. doesn't mean it's not harm, harmful. It is. Some, some, there's some very egregious and false claims that are misinformation and they, and they, and they get shared rapidly. But it's really about the intent, and that's kind of what uh, rumors and hoaxes and pranks are are misinformation typically. Disinformation is deliberate. D is D. That's kind of the helpful way of thinking about it. Dis disinformation is false or misleading or manipulated content that is presented as fact that is intended to deceive or harm. So what you often see with lots of disinformation is that there might be state actors behind it. If you think of the of the invasion of Ukraine, um, when President Putin announced the the invasion just over a year ago, he said that they were entering the country to remove the Nazis who were controlling the country. There weren't Nazis controlling the country. There was a democratically elected government in who headed by President Zelensky over there. But in 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 producing and promoting and repeating this claim. That it, that it is intended to deceive. It is intended to, first of all, inwards towards Russia, create the perception that uh, this is a country that is run by extremists and therefore we are justified in going in. But then it's also to produce, pr pr promote that viewpoint to kind of sympathizers around the world, these kinds of things. So false and misleading and exaggerated claims have been at the heart of how far-right agitators or extremists have been discussing the situation regarding asylum seekers here in, in Ireland in the last in the last number of years. I remember in 2018-2019 reporting and covering this that one uh, far-right figure, I could see them entering local groups uh, around the country which were supposed to be, they were proposed to be housing an asylum seeker centre and this figure was sharing articles from uh, what I would call a junk news website, a website that really does traffic in, in exaggerated and kind of fear-mongering 
uh, content about asylum seekers. And they're posting these articles saying, this is coming to your, your community, you need to do something now. And that was a way of trying to foster local opposition and to try and turn people against or against asylum seekers or foster hostility and fear and suspicion. The same thing is happening right now, but the kind of networks upon which this is, this is this is occurring are not just Facebook. Now we have Twitter and we have Telegram, we have WhatsApp and all of these other uh, platforms as well. The claims that are very current right now, something that's kind of grown or developed since I would say January onwards, are claims of migrant or asylum seeker criminality. So you you might have seen these on TikTok or elsewhere, and it might be on TikTok, but it might be a screenshot from Facebook, and then it might be supported by a screenshot of a tweet from Twitter. You know, there's such a patchwork of things going on here that you have to stand over if you are going to share that yourself. But essentially, claims of migrant criminality. And what ties all of these kinds of claims together is that there might be a screenshot or a video that shows, it might just show one thing. It shows a person walking down the street, but then when the videos are shared, there's an added caption or the videos are framed in a certain way that typically fosters a claim of criminality against migrants. This is presented as fact and there's no way to stand over it. There's there's often no reports made to guardie around these things, but you have, first of all, it's like a playbook. The video emerges online, then an anonymous kind of aggregator account. So it might be, you might see it online. It has an Irish tricolor or calls themselves patriots, these kinds of accounts. It shares it. It frames it as uh, some migrant criminality. Then one of these leading figures will share this with their network. They naturally have a larger platform and people will believe that they are kind of an activist or, or acting in the good. They'll say something disparaging or incriminating about migrants. And then it seeps down into local community groups or might enter kind of WhatsApp circles or networks. And then it incites people to either protest against this, maybe go to the local Garda station saying, why is there no report? The Garda will say, well, no report was made. Then people will say, well, there's a cover up. And then you can see how this whole cycle is like a feedback loop where it feeds itself. And the, the last thing I'll say for Otrobacti is that What's so dangerous and harmful right now is the speed at which that feedback loop is um, is kind of taking place. So a claim appears online. The claim is shared by a kind of influential figure. The figure shares this and it's kind of seeps into local communities. Pro communities need to protest or they might say some very harmful or dangerous things about asylum seekers saying that we need to get them out or burn them out or are these you know very dangerous things that 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 loop that speed at which these things are happening right now is incredibly uh incredibly fast and that is all completely different because this kind of stuff is a form of nativism or ethno-nationalism where they are targeting these people based essentially on their ethnicity versus local community groups who are saying that the, the locality is not capable of maybe housing 100 or 200 or more uh, asylum seekers. And as I kind of said at the top of the, at the piece, more so concerns based in resources or capabilities. Uh, the line can be blurred. Yeah, it's, it's not easy sometimes to read between them. But far right figures or far right activists or groups can typically always come back to that kind of Ireland for the Irish, white Irish, ethnicity based um conversations and, and points like that as well 
Yeah, so I think most people can agree that, they, that they've seen these videos or heard that rhetoric repeated by someone in their life. So similarly, in the COVID pandemic, our knowledge of the virus and how to combat it was constantly evolving. So as the best knowledge became available, it changed some of, uh, it, it changed what people, you know, how people approach the virus. Um, and that new information was sometimes used as a way to discredit the government and previous COVID measures in general. So what are these people's aims? These people such as those spreading, as you said, the loop of disinformation and misinformation. What is their goal? Is it just to spread their ide ideology or are there other aspects to it? For example, to make money or to decrease trust in the government? That's just an important point. Over time, we grew, became more informed about either how the virus works or how vaccines works. And of course, some mistakes might have been made along the way and some uh, restrictions that were put in place. I think we all kind of thought the lockdowns went on for a bit too long. You know, these kinds of feelings. And that's normal. But over time, when either governments or health figures or public figures would stand up and say, okay, now we're changing tack because the information has changed as well and we're moving with it. Conspiracy theorists or extremists, they gravitate towards this. They use this because they're able to lean on this kind of uncertainty and lean on this to themselves, further exacerbate hostility or fear or suspicion. In times of crisis and kind of uh, uncertainty conspiracy theories or support and belief in conspiracy theories increases this is proven by research covid was a perfect petri dish in a way for this because from march april 2020 onwards here was this very complex very uh, kind of amorphous it was just it was hard to define what exactly it was and it happened actually quite quickly because at a time it was just this thing that was happening on the far side of the world and then covid quickly spread in this complex crisis period conspiracy theories prosper because they offer a simplistic solution or sometimes they offer someone to blame so here were people who were essentially either producing themselves or promoting or kind of becoming a conspiracy theory influencer who are saying, this is how it works. This is why it's happening. COVID doesn't exist. There's actually, the government are using this as a way to either curve your freedoms or they want everyone to have a microchip in the arm so they can monitor their movements. You know, all of these very, they're the very kind of uh, at one end of the scale. There was at the softer edge, there was like, no, COVID is real, but the government are definitely taking advantage of it because for their own nefarious means, but here was a very simplistic solution. And for people who may have been either fearful or scared or just not sure what was going on, or they have their own other biases, um, or they might just not like the governing party who were enforcing the legislations, that's enough of a grain to maybe kind of to send them on the way. And what happened after COVID is what, what, what our, my colleagues and I would call the COVID effect is that people who might have become interested in anti-lockdown or anti-mask or anti-vaccine kinds of uh, opposition or, or activism entered online spaces where uh, you, you mentioned at the top traditional media had kind of gatekeepers where they could stand over media that was being produced or was cause of practice in Facebook groups in Telegram group chats or in WhatsApp group chats there is no code of practice there is no gatekeeper who is saying uh, this article that was produced by a New York Times journalist who has 20 years experience versus this person who who is producing a video from their basement and has put it on some obscure video platform you never heard of. These things are the same. These things have equal merit. No, they don't. They're very different. But for people in the midst of a kind of who, who kind of have an inkling that something isn't right and they want to kind of find something that might confirm these biases or the beliefs, it can. And people who enter these spaces, 
seeking information around masks or vaccines or lockdowns or these kinds of things then entered these conspiracy ecosystems and since then it really is a melting pot online and uh, what you can see in lots of the kind of groups that might be sharing or or seeding or spreading false or misleading claims about asylum seekers right now is that if you scroll back, you can see stuff that might pop up last year around climate change or uh, stuff that is quite disparaging towards the LGBTQ community. Or if you go back to 2020, it's vaccines and COVID. So COVID really was a kind of force multiplier. It got, people were had much more time online and where lots of people inevitably, inevitably went was towards spaces where conspiracy theories swirled. So, so conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists and extremists have taken advantage of this. They have done it for multiple ideological reasons. Um, some far right parties who are really opposed to immigrants, for example, were promoting at one stage promoting lockdowns because it was a way of keeping immigrants out. For example, you know, then they changed tack and they realized there's a there's a kind of seed of anti-government opposition to lockdowns so why don't we try and either organize or promote or pro or, or kind of get some anti-lockdown movements or protests going and we can kind of ride that wave in our own way so in one aspect yes it is to foster anti-government support but it's also to foster anti-democratic support because extremist groups and extremists they prosper when people move away from kind of consensus and you give a little you take a little you know working together towards the fringes where it's more extreme people are more willing to support you and they do that by kind of just tweaking the levers and trying to promote extremist solutions or false or misleading claims that might support their own arguments and move people away from the kind of democratic institutions as well so you might so in these spaces it's all it's anti-government but it might also be uh, in the case of ireland it's anti-hse for example or it could be anti-gardi or it's anti-eu at a wider level you know these kinds of things and yes they also do it because they are interested in so often the case there's financial motivations for a lot of these figures it could be a case of they have books they want to sell or it has uh, actual physical products they want to sell or because of the way social media is built and the way that we can monetize pretty much anything via content now you'll see that they might put a video on youtube and then there's a link to their patreon account or a gofundme or there's other ways of kind of crowdfunding or inbuilt ways you can tip them via you know via like live tiktok streams or these kinds of ways lots of these figures are trying to build their own platform and trying to build their own audience off the back of it and essentially yeah try and become kind of influencers with their chosen kind of content but the danger is that they're doing so by false and misleading and harmful narratives and they're doing so by targeting uh vulnerable and minority sections of the population as well yeah so it almost appears as a sense of like gotcha where these people are saying the government was wrong once so they're always going to be wrong so We've seen the rise of these well-known individuals and influencers who spread these extremist views, for example, racism, misogyny, and homophobia. So how do they use online platforms to attract such a large following? And how much of a role do online algorithms play in creating these followings? Yeah, they use online platforms very smartly, very adept. Uh, extremist figures purely by their own need for survival to find new places where they can propagate their messages. They actually have been you know, traditional early adopters of new forms of technology since since the internet was was a thing. Um, when it comes to social media, what we've seen extremists be quite successful at is using these spaces to 
but first of all using these spaces as a means to to get their message out there so take an anti-asylum seeker message that is rooted in um you know white irish goods non-white people bad that kind of message so they use online platforms to to post content that promotes this ideology then they use uh their their, their crowdfunding campaign or their patreon account to try and seek financial support for uh this kind of ideology and they present themselves as like a as, as someone who's an activist or a campaigner or they present themselves as someone who is being censored or silenced or a victim and then you have to support them to help them get the quote-unquote truth out there and um, they use it quite successfully but at the flip at the other side of that social media platforms make it relatively simple for figures i mean if you take tiktok i do a lot of work about looking at extremism and hate speech on tiktok the barriers to entry for creating something that is technically impressive and creative on tiktok is low and that's for like 99.9 percent of users on tiktok they use it for you know food videos dancing videos whatever it might be or reaction videos but extremists use that platform as well and they use the green screen effect and they use filters and they use specific songs and they link, they create trends based on songs as well. They use the features the same way that others do, but when they use these features, they use it to propagate hate and they use it to other and target and denigrate or dehumanize um, groups as well. And yes, you look at the, the, the algorithmic side of things as well. I mean, a very simple measure if you come across in a, a video i mean as i have or, or my colleagues have that has a million views and it says some very disparaging or dehumanizing things about ukrainian refugees in ireland for example but the account only has a thousand followers or something like that it's it raises questions right away about is there some algorithmic amplification going on here and is tiktok's algorithm for whatever reason serving this video to more people beyond this user's immediate network and if it has a million views and it's coming from a small account like that i think it's a safe bet that it is and then that raises serious questions again about how tiktok might be artificially uh, amplifying this kind of stuff and again that's that's fine when it's when it's food and video food and, and music and whatever kinds of normal genuine videos that's fine but if it's been used to target others then it becomes dangerous and this in different ways happens also on different platforms you have uh, every platform has well every responsible mainstream platform has community guidelines so what is and isn't allowed on platforms and some pla most platforms also especially the big ones have very nuanced comprehensive guidelines on what is and isn't allowed so you know you can post an educational video that's from a documentary that's about world war ii and includes a portion of a speech from hitler for example that's educational that that's allowed but you can't post uh, a promotional clip of your of a video edit of, of hitler and he's doing the sig heil salute you know this kind of stuff those nuances are made but what you so often find on platforms is that there's a gap there's a, a consistency gap between the policies that are quite nuanced and quite understanding of how this stuff exists online versus how it takes place online. And that's something that I found repeatedly in, in some of my research about TikTok is that the, the guidelines say this thing and they say this thing shouldn't be allowed. But you can find these videos and it doesn't take a whole lot of work to find these videos. So there's those aspects as well. And then at the other side of it, there's also platforms who just don't even try. They don't even have community guidelines they've or they have bare bones terms of service so something like telegram right now telegram 
uh, will essentially move, remove child pornography or remove ISIS videos. Those, those are generally the two things that it, and it will, will take action against other repeat offenders, let's say, but in the in the online ecosystem right now of, of false, misleading and exaggerated claims about asylum seekers or about COVID conspiracy claims about vaccines or about um, Trump supporting communities who are putting out all sorts of false claims about voter fraud in the US. You know, this kind of stuff is not taken down off those kinds of platforms. And that's the kind of alternative platforms to which lots of extremists gravitate towards when they are eventually removed from Facebook. But if you're someone who's in my position or in, in government or, or elsewhere, it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole. And it's very tough to try and track and mitigate against this stuff. And also, uh, if you think of, I don't know, a live stream video from a protest and, and the person who's presenting it says uh, a number of false and misleading things about asylum seekers in a 10-minute video, that might be 100, video, 100 claims in that 10-minute video. For example, to create a fact check against maybe one of those claims will take a couple of hours for a journalist, but to get it, it might have to contact another professional or another expert to get that kind of expert view. It might have to go digging through government documents to find the uh, the information. And then when, when they do produce that video or when they do produce that fact check, it might get 10 times less engagement and it's 10 times uh, as long to make the claim. So you can see the challenges that are inherent in this, where it seems as a lot of the time the, the cards are stacked against mainstream media or government or uh, institutions around the country. And, you know, extremist figures and conspiracy theorists have all have a lot of advantages to make a false claim, see it spread online, and they know how to do it. They know how to get it out there and use a false claim to get people protesting. So, yeah, it's a it's a very challenging ecosystem to be working in. Yeah. What do you think needs to be done to counter the rise of online extremism? Uh, a lot um for for online extremism well extremism first of all in general and the way that uh we need to try and tackle that is to increase support and trust in our institutions in our democratic institutions so politicians first of all yes but also uh the police and also the health service and that's and that's a job for you know government to try and take aim at some of the major uh, crises in Ireland, let's say, around housing and healthcare, for example, that will naturally lead people away from extremism and extremist figures who are offering their own solutions towards the systems that work for everyone. But that won't happen tomorrow. So that won't happen, you know, primarily online. That's kind of in the online question. It comes back to um, trying to to block or stymie the ability for these figures to use online platforms. Uh, to propagate hate and to promote extremism. Um, the way by that which has to happen is that platforms, first of all, need to create strict policies that allow that, well, first of all, prohibit figures who might be denigrating or dehumanizing uh, or posting denigrating or dehumanizing content about asylum seekers, for example, or other kind of topics that we typically see extremist figures gravitate towards. Then you also need, need to remove their ability to monetize their content and to build platforms off it. And you also need to, to, to decrease or tackle that enforcement gap that I mentioned earlier on as a way to, to essentially say to these figures, yes, if you're Joe Soap, 
and you, and you can use this platform but if you use this platform to say very damaging and harmful things about asylum seekers or claim that they've done a number of incriminating things without any evidence then your ability to use this platform should be limited or should be taken away from you um, altogether so we need to think about platforms working together more as well because uh, as i mentioned earlier on you might see a tiktok video with a false or misleading claim about asylum seekers and and it's probably a, a screenshot of a WhatsApp message or a, or a Facebook post. And then that kind of shows how all platforms form part of a patchwork that is enabling extremism and hate uh, to prosper right now. And the risk that there is very real offline um, consequences for this kind of stuff and, and the speed at which this kind of stuff is happening right now is very damaging. And then lastly, what I say is that all these things have to work together. So the online hate bill that the government is, is introducing right now needs to be enforced and it needs to be actioned. It does it, it needs to be careful that its application is carefully um put in place so that there's you know no kind of false positives caught, these kinds of things and, and those kinds of guardrails must be in place for legislation. But it also needs to be implemented and used to try and uh, snuff out the the worst uh, behavior that's that's ending up people being targeted and, and and victimized. One of the main issues I can see with like you know kind of um, uh, dealing with these kind of misinformation disinformation is how would you deal how would you see you know governments or companies deal with partially true claims which are being distorted by these people like where it's a partially true claim and they apply their own opinion to it as if it's fact. How would you say what would you say would be the best way to do that? Yeah, it's very difficult. Free speech must be protected at all times in 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 all of these avenues. It it has to be. It has to be the first principle. But and 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 so often when you see a false claim, there might be a grain of truth in it. You know, there it's kind of like a, a is it a truth or a, or a false? I would, uh, the sandwich analogy is the one that's popped up time and time again. So between two bits of truth is a false claim, and you kind of use the. The credibility of the first i mean right now there is a housing crisis so there's a squeeze on resources these things are true but uh, asylum seekers arriving into ireland on monday are not being given three bedroom houses on tuesday for example you know these kinds of things can are existing for the government it's very important that the legislation that is first of all drafted consults with and 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 this is true of the online safety bill but also any piece of legislation concerning this area that first of all consults people who have worked in this area or have researched it for a long time and can inform them about you know those those perhaps implicit consequences of where things might go if things aren't considered properly and then once it starts moving through um the legislature that it's that it's given time for TDs to ask questions to seek feedback and then for it to be implemented uh we can design you know, government can design legislation, but if it's not enforced or implemented, then it's not really worth the paper is written on, I guess. Um, so it's 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 tremendously difficult to try and create legislation that allows for opinion, that allows for it allows for people to be wrong. And that's also a very important part of um not not countering, but kind of I suppose research in this area is that, you know people have a right to be wrong and people have a right to get things wrong in public and to either learn from it or maybe not learn from it as well. I mean, it's it's about striking a balance and it shouldn't be on one person to do this. And that's why the, the, the democratic approach to doing this and maybe taking a lead from other countries who try to do this as well is also very important. 
like I said, people have a right to air their views. People have a right to ask questions and not be uh, silenced or cancelled or all these, you know, buzzwords that are, that are so in right now. You know, people need to be able to figure these things out for themselves. The, the, the flip side is that there are people and are be it extremist figures or uh, political figures or conspiracy theorists who thrive on that gray area of where truth and uh, fiction might blur, for example. Yeah, so we almost need to find the Goldilocks zone of free speech while also fighting disinformation. Exactly. So finally, what are your top tips for how teenagers can protect themselves and others against these issues? First of all, you need to be you need to be careful on where you get your news and ask yourself maybe if I wanted to find out about um I don't know what what's happening in Ukraine right now. What would I Google? What would would I Google Ukraine RTE or would I Google Ukraine and insert conspiracy theorist here? You know, it's this kind of thing. So what is your go to news source? I would recommend most people would recommend uh, mainstream, you know, long established news organizations. The reason why these organizations are still around and they have, you know, funding and they have audiences is because they are trusted, is because they have, they adhere to a code of practice somewhere like RTE or the BBC in the UK or even any number of the of the newspapers in Ireland or, or news or radio stations are all quite responsible because they sign up to, uh, they sign up to communities that, that require that board of practice and that, that if they do step out of line or they get something wrong, they will let either put their hands up and apologize or they'll face further or more severe uh, restrictions on them as well. So, Standing over where you're getting your news is very important. We've seen the rise of, I don't even know what to describe them. They're not news organizations. You might call them a website that does news, but they kind of present themselves as as a, as a news organization. And they might even have a verified profile somehow. Um, trying to distinguish between, you know, this, this kind of website versus RTE can be difficult and, and it can be tough. And I would I would recommend if you have questions over a source, Google. So I don't know, take um take Fox News in the US, for example. I'm using them because they're not Irish. If you have questions over how is Fox News regarded in terms of reputation and how trustworthy it is, just Google and and Google or Fox News and uh, biases or something like this, because you might see other news organizations reporting on them. This can be quite helpful. Um, that's the first step. Second step is, I mean, so much of us get our news on TikTok or on these social media platforms that are kind of called a sandbox because once you're in these platforms, you don't tend to kind of go outside them. So if you're on TikTok where links don't work unless you're on someone's profile, uh, it's it's not really much use me posting a link to RTE in the comments because you're not going to click it. It's just not going to happen unless you, unless you want to screenshot it and do some sort of image capture thing, you know, not happening. So if you're on these kinds of social media platforms and you see a claim coming from somewhere else, can you stand over who shared that video? Do you know this person? Do Are they a journalist? Are you sure they're a journalist? Are they a government figure? You know, can you stand over who this, your friend Johnny passed something or shared this video? Is Johnny pretty good for sharing this stuff or has been known to kind of share exaggerated or false stuff in the past? Standing over that kind of stuff. And um, extremists thrive on really, really um, serious and emotional claims. If, if if something makes you really angry or really exaggerated or really kind of going, what the hell is happening in certain place down the road? It might be a good step, just a step, to, it might be a good reminder just to step back and say, 
Is this true? What what else has been reported on this? And then lastly, challenge challenge your friends if you feel it's safe to do so or feel it's it's a good idea to do so. Call them out for sharing something that you know to be false. Uh, to to say that uh, you know, look, this is that that news source you link to or that source you link to. They're not reputable. I've seen them post really false or misleading stuff in the past. And I prefer if you didn't share that before or if you didn't make this really disparaging claim about asylum seekers while linking to that news source or get informed and kind of work together as well. But all these things um, should be done in ways that are also, of course, suitable to you as well. Like we don't want anybody kind of getting into the fight on the comment sections of some TikTok video either unless they unless they really want to, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, that's my tip. You've given us a lot of insight into the world of online extremism and your work with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Thanks for joining me, Kieran. Thanks very much, Owen.